Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined as always by my co-host Danny Bessner, and we are very lucky to be joined uh, by Samar Al Bulushi, assistant professor of anthropology at UC Irvine, uh, contributing editor at Africa as a Country, and non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. Uh, Samar's research focuses uh, quite a bit on East Africa and, uh, and to a large extent on. Uh, the wonderful contributions the United States has made to East Africa uh, in the war on terror. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, the Somali government has apparently asked the U.S. to increase drone strikes uh, against al-Shabaab, the al-Qaeda-linked group uh, that it's been battling for quite some time. So we're going to talk about where this all started, how the U.S. came to be involved in East Africa, and kind of work up to present-day uh, Somalia. So Samar, first of all, thank you. Uh, very much for coming on the program. Of course, it's great to be here. Why don't we start at the beginning, and you can start us where you think uh, it makes most sense. When does East Africa uh, really get on the radar of the United States in a post-Cold War sense? Is it the uh, you know Kenyan-Tanzania embassy bombings? Is it is it the first intervention in Somalia under uh, good old George H.W. Bush. Uh, what, where's the, the point at which we can start to tell kind of the origin story of uh, the U.S. in this region? Yeah, so I think we can start with the Cold War era um, and just kind of highlight the degree to which Somalia was a site of geostrategic interest for both the United States and the Soviet Union. They were vying for influence during the 70s in particular, and Somalia shifted its alliances away from the Soviet Union in the late 70s to the United States. And so the Somali people have crossed the threshold of a new future. For them, as for others, sunrise is a symbol of hope. And from this time forward, they will know and be sure that every single day will bring a new dawn of achievement. And very soon after that, Somalia became the second largest uh, recipient of political, military, and economic aid from the United States on the African continent. And the leader at the time, Siad Bari, used that aid to build what became the largest army on the African continent. Then he obviously relied on this massive militarized apparatus to oppress his own population. And Congress came under a lot of uh, pressure to uh, respond to the, to the mass human rights violations that were taking place. And it actually cut off aid to the Siad Bari regime in 1990. Now that then set off um, a deterioration of uh, the political context in, in Somalia to the point that millions of people fled the country, a civil war erupted. And in that context, the United States used the pretext of a famine uh, in the early 1990s as a basis for military intervention in Somalia. It teamed up with the United Nations at the time, and ostensibly this was a humanitarian intervention. Now, if you look at the details at the time, you would find that, in fact, the height of the famine had already passed by the time the U.S. decided to intervene. 
But of course, most of the American public um, was not aware of those details and was compelled by this need to save dying Africans. Now, as we all know, that intervention um, took a very dark turn when uh, I think roughly 18 troops, U.S. troops were killed. The U.S. vastly, vastly underestimated uh, resistance, Somali resistance to the intervention. And so in the wake of the Black Hawk Down incident, as it became known, the U.S. was increasingly reluctant to deploy U.S. troops to the ground. So that uh, background, I think, is really important for us to keep in mind when we fast forward to the 2000s. I just have a question about that. Could you maybe just frame, uh, just step out a little, what does the United States think it's doing? Does it actually think it's doing a humanitarian intervention? Because it's so, this is happening as the end of history era begins, the structure of the Cold War begins to go away. The United States is, is kind of searching for uh, its new role in the world. You have military contractors advocating for X. You have p- people talking about the, you know, the peace dividend advocating for Y. Uh, and so this is really interesting because you have like this very early moment in the end of history era. So I'd just be curious, what does the U.S. think it's doing? How does it relate to those much larger structural transformations? I think that's a great question. And for me, I think there's a lot to be kind of unpacked to compare that period of time with the current moment in the sense that liberal internationalism was, you know, the way to go. And And it was so easy to sell the American public, to sell American policymakers on this idea of saving starving Africans, right? Um, And that there's definitely been a shift since then. And I I think there's been a rise of cynicism, even within the political establishment, many of whom would still identify as as liberal internationalists and and more skepticism when it comes to these interventions. So I would simply say that that was still a period of kind of romanticism with regards to the idea that the U.S. could be a savior in the world. So let's fast forward, as you say, the 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 failure, the Black Hawk Down you know, incident, the the failure of this uh, UN ostensibly humanitarian intervention um, seems to have caused the United States to shy away from uh, dealing in East Africa and Somalia in particular uh, for several years. What is it after the kind of late 90s and then, of course, the the September 11th attacks, uh, which, you know, have no obvious connection to East Africa, what is it that causes... Uh, East Africa to come back, and Somalia in particular, to come back to the fore in terms of uh, becoming a a part of the war on terror. Uh, And I want to get into the civil war and the Islamic Courts Union, the the sort of, uh, you know, the U.S. intervention to to get rid of the Islamic Courts Union, which winds up, I would say, backfiring quite a bit. Um, But let's start with just sort of in general, what is it that that brings Somalia back onto Washington's uh, kind of focus? Okay, so I think we could kind of parse out the uh, reasons for growing U.S. interest in the region, um, divide between the kind of publicly stated objectives and then the kind of behind the scenes interests, right? And uh, we should probably start with the late 1990s, the 1998 attacks at the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, because it was at that time that Al-Qaeda first emerged kind of on the global stage as this uh, network, right, that posed a threat to the United States. 
Then we can think about the conversations taking place in the Bush administration in the early 2000s that roughly coincided with 9-11 as they were identifying Africa as a whole as a geostrategic site of importance for the U.S. in terms of access to oil supplies. Now, with the rise of al-Qaeda, it became a convenient boogeyman for the U.S. to point to and to say, as they did at the time of the 1998 attacks, that al-Qaeda had the potential to either build support networks within East Africa and or to find refuge. Um, and so Somalia became a site of concern for the Bush administration through that lens. They believed that there was the potential for al-Qaeda to plan attacks from the country, and it was on that basis that they began to uh, cultivate interest. The CIA began to cultivate interest among a certain set of leaders in Somalia, hoping that it could foil a potential attack. Now, from there, we can think about the rise of the Islamic Courts Union, which was significant for Somalis in the sense that it restored a level of stability to the country that they hadn't seen in many years. Now, the U.S. used the religious dimension of this Islamic court system, again, as a boogeyman uh, to scare Americans about the potential for the rise of an Islamic state. And it was on that basis that it was able to mobilize support domestically, of course, not for an explicitly uh, formally sanctioned U.S. intervention in Somalia, but to cooperate with a partner in the region, namely Ethiopia. Can you give people just sort of a general sense of what the Islamic Courts Union was and, and its emergence and what that did for Somalia after so many years of just kind of utter chaos in the for most of the 90s? Yeah, I can speak briefly to that. And hopefully um, others that you'll be speaking to, like Ahmed Sharif Ibrahim, can give you more background because I think he has done specifically research on the Islamic courts. So they, um, you know, offered, I think, for Somalis a method with which to resolve conflicts um, at a time when the situation had been so profoundly unstable. And it came with, as mentioned, religious dimensions um, that some people would would characterize as quote unquote radical or as, as extreme. But I think Somalis themselves felt that ultimately they were more focused on uh, the potential for stability. So if we jump ahead now to uh, to December 2006, that was when um, the U.S. teamed up with the Ethiopian government in a push for intervention in Somalia. Now, what's important here is that uh, even though the Ethiopians intervened with U.S. Um, aerial support and surveillance, the reason I think one of the reasons that the U.S. had to work closely with e Ethiopia, besides the fact that it didn't want to put U.S. troops directly on the ground, was that the U.S. actually lacked um, adequate intelligence on the ground in Somalia. So if we think about that period of time from the 90s when it left the country after the Black Hawk Down incident, and now we're in the mid-2000s, the CIA itself hadn't had a presence in the country. So it didn't have adequate intelligence and was relying very heavily on the Ethiopians, um, which I think some would argue gave the Ethiopians an upper hand in this partnership. Um, so the Ethiopians intervene December 2000. For, for the Ethiopians, I, I just want to understand the Ethiopian motivation here. I mean, this is part of a string, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is part of a an extended kind of 
uh, on and off again conflict over borders, over the relationship between Somalis in in the Somali region of Ethiopia and in Somalia. Uh, it, it, what was the the kind of what was pushing Ethiopia to want to intervene at this particular moment? I mean, I, I you know, with in the context of this longer, broader sort of uh, conflict, what was it about this moment? Was it just that the United States was now interested in doing something, or was it was there something going on uh, along the border that that prompted this? So it was partly um, concerns around cross-border um, migration of Somalis uh, of into Ethiopia, but I would say that. The larger concern, in fact, was uh, Eritrea. So 2006, at the time, Ethiopia and Eritrea were still at odds. They had not reconciled. Um, that was something that came much later, I think around 2018, 2019, when Abiy Ahmed came to power. Now, uh, Ethiopia was concerned that Eritrea was backing the Islamic Courts Union and was potentially going to be working with the Islamic Courts Union to destabilize Ethiopia. So in many ways, this became a proxy war um, for Ethiopian concerns with Eritrea. That would, I would say that was one of the primary uh, motivating factors for Ethiopia, which the U.S., of course, isn't really taking into consideration when they team up with Ethiopia for their own concerns. So now, if we think about what transpires in the immediate aftermath of the invasion? One, there is no um, condemnation from the United Nations, right? And in fact, not only did the UN not condemn the invasion, they sat down with the United States and with other governments involved and said, okay, it looks like we need to set up a peacekeeping operation. So effectively, what became the African Union mission for Somalia served as a cover for what has now been a 15-year military occupation of the country. Ethiopian forces were allowed to stay. They were integrated into this African Union peacekeeping operation. So you might say that they were effectively rewarded for their intervention. And what began as a very small operation in the form of roughly 1,600 troops gradually metastasized over the years into uh, a a force that amounted to roughly 22,000 African forces from five African states that included uh, Kenya, Ethiopia, Djibouti, Uganda, and Burundi. So what's important here is that the story we are often told about Somalia is one that focuses on two primary actors. We're told about the U.S. on the one hand, and al-Shabaab on the other. And every once in a while, we'll get a little bit about the Somali government playing a supporting role with the United States, right? But what's significant about the African Union is this it's this massive force that involves five other states, which is itself funded by a whole array of actors, um, including the United States, the European Union, and other countries, um, not to mention we haven't yet touched on, but can get to uh, the growing role of the Gulf states, so we have just this huge array of actors that are involved on the ground in Somalia that are rarely taken into account as we are assessing the situation on the ground. Let's talk about the emergence of al-Shabaab from within the Islamic Courts Union and, and as a product, basically. I mean, you know, they're now the great al-Qaeda threat as far as the United States is concerned. They're the best funded, best armed, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, we have to be in Somalia to, to deal with them. It's the it's this intervention in 2006 that creates a Shabab. I, I mean, let's talk a little bit about 
that process and how they emerged in the wake of this, uh, the Ethiopian, U.S.-backed Ethiopian invasion? Right. So we were talking about the Islamic courts earlier. What happened in the wake of the invasion is that uh, segments of the leadership within the Islamic courts fled and segments decided to form a more militant entity, which eventually became what we now know as al-Shabaab. So since that time, al-Shabaab has, has, as we've noted, grown. Um, it is the direct product, and, and we could even take it a little further back, right, in thinking about the ways in which the CIA was funding and backing certain warlords as a counter to the Islamic courts. And what's important to emphasize here, whether it was the pre-invasion moment or the post-invasion moment, is the extent to which so many different actors are involved that we simply cannot talk of a very like clean binary set of quote-unquote good guys on the one side and quote-unquote bad guys on the other, right? So al-Shabaab as an entity, part of the reason that it has metastasized in strength and in number is very much to do with the fact that so many different actors have come on the scene. So we could take Kenya as an example. In October of 2011, until that point, Kenya had not been formally involved in the conflict. But in October of 2011, Kenya decided to invade Somalia. The Kenyan government spokesman says they have the right to defend themselves and to pursue the enemy. They blame al-Shabaab for what they describe as the kidnapping of aid workers and other foreigners. Once again, you have another round of lack of response from the United Nations and, in fact, a re rewarding of their decision to invade because they too were then incorporated into this peacekeeping operation. Now, the Kenyan military, first of all, the Kenyan government very much, Kenya as a country, very much like Ethiopia, is composed of uh, Somalis, of ethnic Somalis, right? And so many of them occupy leadership positions within Kenya. And I think many would argue that that many within this leadership had economic and political interests in Somalia itself. The port of Kismayu, which is in the southern portion of Somalia, which is where al-Shabaab has maintained quite a stronghold, is of great interest, obviously, to all parties involved in terms of its access to uh, global trade. But more specifically, what we saw with the with the involvement of the Kenyans is their growing entanglement and explicit cooperation with segments of al-Shabaab in the trade in charcoal and sugar. So that just gives you an example. And both, you know, charcoal and sugar have been the source of, I think, roughly a million dollars in income on an annual basis. So that gives you a sense of um, unexpected sources of financial and political support, you might say, to al-Shabaab over the course of the last 15 years. I want to talk a little bit about the Somali state. Somalia is often talked about as a failed state, maybe the quintessential failed state. And I, I love that term because it's it puts the onus on yeah, not Somalia. Not like the United basically. States. Like, you know, we're yeah, so awesome. It's like, you know, yeah. We're, we're great. No, but it's, I mean, it's sort of like, well, they tried to have a state, but they failed. They, they just couldn't, they couldn't hack it or whatever. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about what, what you're describing here is a, a country that is 
basically a playground for the United States to pursue counterterrorism, for the Kenyans to pursue their own aims, for uh, the Ethiopians to pursue their own aims. You mentioned the Gulf states. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the role that they've played. What has this all done to the capacity uh, for any Somali government to actually form and have any sort of coherence or, or you know, kind of control uh, over the state to have all these foreign actors, the African Union, sorry, I, I meant to mention them as well, uh, you know, if you consider them separately from, from Ethiopia, that's a, a whole nother player. What does this do to, a, to the ability of the government to kind of, you know, establish a, a, a coherent state? Great question. So, as you say, you know, Somalia is consistently, consistently held up as the quintessential failed state. And um, I think it's important to think about the racialized connotation of that language. These days, rarely is the U.S. and the U.N. Um, employing explicitly racialized language when it comes to Africa. But these um, seemingly like technocratic terms in many cases serve, I think, as a veil <laughs> for for race. Now, as you say, Somalia has become a playground for so many different actors. What does that mean then for the government's ability to function? I think uh, what has become clear is that there are so many different interests at play, right? And especially when you bring in, um, if we look beyond the United States and bring in the Gulf states, bring in Turkey, uh, which by the way, is has announced in the last month that it itself has joined um, the drone warfare element of this war. Um, what we see is that there, that within the government, there it is splintering into so many different factions. Um, and then we can think about the ways in which that has a ripple effect within the security agencies themselves, different external governments, whether it's the UAE, whether it's Qatar, whether it's Turkey, are funding different security arms of the, of the Somali government, right? So we can then see how within the Somali security apparatus, there, there's the potential for factions and for rivalries in a way that entirely distracts them from what is ostensibly the bigger picture, namely fighting al-Shabaab. Samar, I'm curious. So I study area studies, you know, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And the origins of a lot of these fields were to create knowledge about the world that the U.S. government could then use to understand it and be, you know, a, a, an effective hegemon, for lack of a better phrase. But what you were just talking about, the type of incomprehensibility of what was happening in uh, Somalia, suggests to me that there's not these connections between people who do area studies who, you know, could make this uh, phenomena comprehensible and the U.S. government. So I was just wondering if you could maybe comment on that because uh, it's particularly, I think, to what's going on more broadly in the global south during the so-called war on terror and the relationship between knowledge and power. Yeah, this is a question that I've thought so much more about in the present context rather than the kind of Cold War context. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around um, what I see as today as a, you know, because of the um, extent to which those of us who are thinking critically about the U.S.'s role in the world are 
ourselves critical of the very notion of area studies precisely for the reasons that you elaborated, connection between knowledge and power, making the U.S. a more effective hegemon. I think what I've observed in the, in the more recent context is a shift away from studying the rest of the world, you know, to put it like very exactly. Simply. That's what's happening, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's like uh, the hegemon turning in on itself. Sorry to interrupt. Exactly. And it's really, you know, this is something that came to my mind in the context of Aziz Rana's piece in Descent about internationalism in the heart of empire in the sense that I was looking for him to kind of wrestle with that, you know, gradual decline in interest right? That to me seems like a really important starting point. Now, if we were to rewind, then I would say that comparatively speaking, there, there was more knowledge, right, during the Cold War, because people were studying these countries and these regions. And they were, there were, I think, much tighter relationships between scholars and the US government. Now, whether they were, quote, getting it right or getting it wrong is debatable. And, and you know, obviously, depends on the perspective from which you are coming at the question. But it is, I think, a real issue today that fewer and fewer people are paying attention. And it, and it leads to, it contributes to a very bankrupt <laughs> analysis of U.S. empire, right? If we don't have the kind of details um, that we need in order to understand what's what's going on and, and, and then think about what needs to be done. It's just very interesting to me because basically you have the irony of the the sundering of that connection basically just resulted in the U.S. government turning it on itself. And it does not even listen to area experts in exactly. the same way. And as that happened, the area experts became much more critical of U.S. hegemony, but much more isolated so that you have right. like two totally different communities where uh, there's just almost no interaction now. And Subsequently, you see the decline of studying the other parts of the world, less funding, less students, you know, the humanities and social sciences as a whole are, are disintegrating, particularly in terms of job markets. So I just wanted to bring that up because I, it was just very interesting to talk about the lot, uh, the, that knowledge gap there. Yeah. And if I might just add briefly, I think what I see is the intervention I'm, I'm trying to make in my work. It is precisely to say that we need to expand our lens to the wider set of actors that are involved in this region beyond the United States. Of course, the U.S. is a major player, right? Um, and so when we think about AFRICOM, and that was something that we actually didn't touch on earlier that has a huge relevance to the kind of uh, uh, developments from the late 90s into the early 2000s, because there was talk about creating something like AFRICOM in the late 90s. It finally came into fruition in, in 2007. And since that time, I think activists, US-based activists who care about Africa are almost singularly focused on AFRICOM as the primary force in the region that needs to be dismantled. And I would say yes, of course, but in the last 20 years, the U.S. has invested primarily through trainings, right, um, in propping up the security apparatuses of so many African governments. And we can see what this looks like in the East African context with regards to Somalia, that simply dismantling AFRICOM is not sufficient, right? We need to, we need to extend our lens. We need to look at precisely the ways in which certain governments have been empowered and their security apparatuses expanded, because that that is something that is going to take years to dismantle as well.
That's a, a, a wonderful segue, actually, because Africa was going to be my next question. Uh, formed in, in 2007, so right in the, the meat of this period where we were uh, toppling the, uh, the ICU and, and giving rise to Shabab. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that uh, we can talk about that I, I, you know, I know we can talk about in, in other parts of Africa related to AFRICOM and, and the war on terror is the training of special forces that then wind up you know, going on to, to attempt coups against their government often successfully. There seems to be a real connection there between U.S. involvement and training these folks and, and eventually, you know, them toppling their elected governments. I'm curious, uh, Somalia, it seems to me, hasn't had that problem, but I'm curious what the uh, kind of building out of the state apparatus, I, I want to get into drones, but that's a separate issue. Uh, the building up of the military apparatus, the training uh, that's gone into kind of, uh, you know, supporting uh, Somali forces. What kind of effect that's had on uh, military-civilian relationships, on government stability, on, on, you know, just generally, you know, the Somali state as it, as it is these days? Great. So I'm going to use this opportunity to focus in on Kenya, which is where I have spent uh, the bulk of my time doing research in relation to the war on terror. And what's important about Kenya is that it, is presumably, you know, the polar opposite of the quote-unquote failed state of Somalia, right? And when we talk about coups, when we talk about the U.S. propping up governments, you know, through military trainings um, in places like, you know, whether it's Somalia or in, in West Africa like Burkina Faso, we tend to assume that it's only these kind of quote-unquote failed states that are the problem. Now, Kenya is a democratic state. It is known in the international community to be kind of a regional anchor of peace and stability. Again, polar opposite of Somalia, right? And what we've seen in Kenya over the last 20 years, again, recall this was also the site of the embassy bombings in 1998. And so U.S. security cooperation with Kenya started, it predated 9-11 in the aftermath of those bombings. And what we've seen um, more so in the last 10 years since Kenya decided to invade Somalia is a rise of the role of the Kenyan military in Kenyan public life and massive, massive investments in the military and in policing. You know, again, Kenya is not likely to be a place where we're likely to see a coup, but I would argue that it is precisely for that reason, right, that we would be inclined to just kind of pass over it and ignore it as a potential site of concern um, that we need to be paying more attention. Kenya has been the site of a rise of extrajudicial killings and disappearances at the hands of U.S.-trained police um, and military. And there have been some really important investigative reports done on not only what is more widely known, the Anti-Terror Police Unit, which is one of those U.S.-trained and U.K. as well trained forces, but also the Rapid Response Team, um, which is a CIA-backed entity uh, that, again, is engaged in these kinds of abuses. Now, Kenyan society has been so compelled by this war on terror that there's very little questioning, right, of these kinds of abuses. And certainly there's very little questioning of Kenya's role in the war on terror. And so what we're seeing in a place like Kenya is a widespread embrace of militarism and of an embrace of militarized approaches to political problems in a way that should be of great concern to all of us, right? 
Um, and so it's precisely those kinds of seemingly contrasting places that I think should force us to de-exceptionalize places like Somalia. Let's take the the narrative we kind of left off here in the 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 late aughts with the creation of Al Shabaab. Let's continue forward under the war on terror. How would you characterize overall, and, and we can get into the differences between uh, the succeeding administrations, but overall the U.S. approach to Somalia, which strikes me as this uh, kind of weird dichotomy of hands off, but also very hands on in the sense that, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of focus on drone strikes, the introduction of that, you know, mostly under uh, the Obama administration, which gives you the ability to kind of act like you're taking care of problems from thousands of miles away, but at the same time, you know, allows you to repeatedly intervene militarily in this place uh, in ways that that could be, you know, quite disruptive. What's your your sort of overall view of of the U.S. and the war on terror and, and what it's uh, done to Somalia over that period of time? So I think that there's so many different ways to to approach this, and my my analysis would be that the U.S. has actually not been uh, interested in anything much more than a militarized approach and a militarized solution. And it is partly for that reason that it, I think it finds itself scrambling now for, in terms of its ability to compete with other players in the region, um, precisely because other actors have focused on other forms of engagement. Turkey, I think, has just been incredibly sophisticated in its engagement with Somalia, um, investing in vast amounts of soft power to win the Somali public over to the point that now you know, you don't see anyone questioning the fact that they're now engaging in droning uh, the country. A Turkish military plane was used to transport several Somalis with serious injuries from Saturday's attacks in Mogadishu. They'll receive treatment in Turkey. And during the Trump administration in particular, my interpretation of the rise in drone strikes was kind of through that lens in the sense that we don't have any other tools in our toolbox right? All we know how to do is bomb. <laughs> and it's through bombing that we not only are, you know, ostensibly going after al-Shabaab, but we're kind of sending an indirect message to our competitors on the ground, um, in the very least, in terms of, you know, they need to watch out, right? You never know if you could yourself be a target. But that's how I have interpreted it. And over this period of time, I mean, it's, it's you know, the, uh, I, I, I said this earlier, but this this sort of rhetorical, you know, focus on a Shabab and, and these guys are, are dangerous. They're, you know, the most powerful Al-Qaeda branch. They could, uh, you know, carry out attacks in the West. We need to be hyper-focused on them. We need to be, you know, bombing them, etc. Uh, th as you say, this is like the only tool in the in the box at this point is is drone strikes. And it, it hasn't, I mean, to my eyes, it, it hasn't worked at all. I mean, you know, a Shabab has uh, kind of, you know, it's had ebbs and flows, but for the most part, it has maintained itself uh, fairly well. So uh, is it fair to say, I mean, it's, uh, even on its own terms uh, or its own stated terms, the, the U.S. role here has been a complete failure or nearly a complete failure? I think that's absolutely fair, other than for those who have profited from this war, right? And that dimension we have to keep in mind. We, I've I've focused a lot on uh, the role of other states, but we haven't touched on the role of private security companies. 
um, many of whom, if we come back to the kind of broader picture of AFRICOM, are involved, you know, they get contracts to train many of these African Union forces that are there. Um, they then use their presence on the ground to negotiate all kinds of other deals. Um, and in fact, there was just, I think, something in the news in the last day or two about uh, an oil agreement reached with something called Coastal, some oil, US-based oil company called Coastal something or other. Um, so again, like it all depends on the perspective that you're operating from, right? And I think that there have been a number of private security companies that, and and we should also say segments of the Somali political elite that have benefited from this war. Could you actually talk a little bit about private security contractors and the role that East Africa broadly played in this sort of privatization of American security, which is really a huge, as you well know, a huge phenomenon of the post-Cold War period. We're almost returning to like Gustavus Adolphus and the Swedish mercenaries marching around the world. And and it just seems like this might have been a quote-unquote laboratory of that imperial transition, or maybe I'm incorrect here. Yeah, you know, I think that's something I really can't speak too much to it. I haven't followed it closely enough, but like one small detail connecting it to other conflicts, um, Blackwater, Eric Prince set up a shop in Kenya. I, I think we really cannot underestimate the degree to which Kenya is so much so entangled uh, in this conflict. They set up shop in Kenya, a, a logistics company from which they were operating uh, in Somalia. So some of the companies that I think we need to be paying attention to include the Serendi Group, which has ties to Uganda and South Africa, Bancroft Global, which is one that has been uh, given contracts to engage in trainings. And what's super important here with the private security industry in general is that, and, and then the, the role of trainings, is that it's the UN has had an arms embargo um, on Somalia, and the only loophole that uh, that allows the influx of arms is in the name of training, right? So these companies obviously take advantage of that, as do all of the foreign governments that are involved. As long as you label it training, you're good to go. So I'm I'm going to throw this out there and tell me if I've lost my marbles, which would not be surprising if this is finally uh, finally it for me. But what you're describing sounds an awful lot to me like from the standpoint of uh, stakeholders like private security companies, like the Pentagon, like arms manufacturers, the ideal version of the war in Afghanistan where it's a conflict that's almost on autopilot. Uh, you do airstrikes, you do training, you send weapons, uh, you you support uh, the, the locals to whatever extent. You don't really care all that much how the conflict goes as long as the money's flowing and uh, all these things are continuing. Um, and, and But here in Somalia, it's low profile enough that there's no political pressure to, do it, to bring an end to it the way that there was in Afghanistan. It's not the forever war. It is a forever war, but it's not the one everybody talks about. Is that is that a reasonable comparison to make? It, it seems like it is, but but maybe I'm I'm uh, off base. Absolutely, I think this is something that is constantly running through my mind: the degree to which it is not on people's radar uh, in the way that places like Afghanistan and Iraq were. We have to ask why that is the case, especially especially given the news of the last week, right? So to come back to what you mentioned in the opening. Um, 
there's actually two important pieces of news. One that al-Shabaab attacked, there, there was actually two bombings back to back in Mogadishu on Saturday that killed uh, roughly 120 people and several hundred were injured. It was a devastating attack, one that I think um, is unparalleled with the exception in the last several years of the 2017 twin bombings that took place. Two days, three days prior to that attack, the New York Times reported that the Somali government had asked the U.S. government to basically remove the kinds of restrictions on drone strikes when it comes to Somalia and restore effectively the Trump era kind of flexible approach to drone warfare, which means that the U.S. military would not need to seek White House approval prior to launching a drone strike in Somalia. So this is a call for all out war. Now, there have been signs that the Somali government has already uh, made a call for all-out war that, again, have gone very much unnoticed by Americans. In September, the president uh, at a press conference said, you know, basically threatened the entire Somali population, saying, you need to get out of any territory that is controlled by al-Shabaab if you don't, you know, consider yourself done. Um, you're a legitimate target. So what we see is collective punishment of the entire Somali population um, and the U.S. seemingly perfectly happy to go along with it. And I saw on Twitter um, somebody somebody offered an alternative headline for The New York Times piece last week, uh, essentially saying that what it should say is that the so Somali government has asked the U.S. for you know, basically full support to do whatever the hell it wants and, you know, to stay in power indefinitely. And that's effectively what we're seeing, right? Now, again, if we kind of come back to this story that one necessarily exceeds the binary of the United States on one hand and al-Shabaab on the other, and factor in the fact that Turkey is droning Somalia, factor in the fact that Kenya and Ethiopia and Uganda are bombing Somalia, right? This is the levels of, destruct of destruction that are taking place that are going completely unnoticed and unrecognized because we have such a unipolar, <laughs> unipolar vision, um, because we're so focused on the U.S., right? That this inevitably contributes to the degree to which Somalia goes, goes unrecognized as a site of endless war. There's one other piece to that that I would ask you to comment on, which has been a feature, it seems, of the the more recent um, actions against uh, Shabab, and that's the, the the rise, I guess, or the emergence of a, a sort of localized uh, resistance uh, in the Haran region, especially. Uh, and this is part of the reason, I, I, I think, from the, the Times piece, why the the Somalis say they're asking the U.S. to to take the safeguards off is because they want more support for these sort of local communal militias, paramilitaries, whatever you want to call them, uh, as they're battling al Shabaab. And this seems to be something the Somali government is hoping will spread to other parts uh, of the country. This is, uh, I mean, this to me is a is a double edged sword, and I don't want to make uh, you know I don't want to beat the, the analogy with Afghanistan uh, up too much, but this is something that the Afghan government did too. It relied on local warlords, local militias, and in, in trying to deal with the Taliban. Uh, and I, I wonder if, you know, you've been following this, uh, what, what your feeling is about this kind of emergence of a, a hybrid local uh, 
federal uh, approach to the conflict. Yeah, I share your concerns about the potential parallels with Afghanistan. I do not see this going well. Um, and, you know, just stating it plainly, right, we're talking about em empowering a wider set of actors to employ violent means to the problem, right? So in and of itself doesn't sound like a good solution. Now, again, what is important here is that the more people who are involved, the more interests are involved, the more potential for factions, the more potential to be bought off, right? So this idea that we can cleanly delineate between who is and is not al-Shabaab, the idea that anyone claims to have that clarity, right, about who is and is not al-Shabaab, whether it's the Somali government, whether it's the U.S., no matter how much intelligence they have, loyalties are constantly changing precisely because there's so many new actors coming in and saying, hey, let's work together. So I think this is a good place to to wrap up. But I, I one of the things that that stands out to me from the conversation that we've just had is is that it would be a good idea, or it would be very uh, nice if more Americans uh, were kind of staying informed about what's going on in Somalia, and if it were not the uh, I would say somewhat forgotten conflict that it it is. Um, where can people, you know, what, what would you want people to do, people who are listening to this, to kind of, you know, familiarize themselves with the conflict and, and stay more informed or active uh, on this issue? So there, you know, there aren't so many sources of critical information and analysis. Honestly, um, we need more. And so I would actually invite folks to, to do research, to do the reading um, of what is already out there. Africa as a country puts out some good analysis and, um, there are a growing number of investigative journalists. Amanda Sperber is someone who has been on the ground. Um, I think those are important starting points, but I would also really emphasize that we have to be paying attention to the wider regional dynamics. And one thing I didn't mention that I think is, is significant here in terms of like a bigger picture um, sense of developments on the continent as a whole in parallel with the rise of AFRICOM, and that is that Qaddafi is really important here, and the removal of Qaddafi is really significant. So in the late 1990s, Qaddafi hosted a conference of the Organization of African Union in which he put back on the table the idea of a continental-wide African army. This is something that had been proposed by Kwame Nkrumah in the 1960s, and Qaddafi put it back on the table. Now, he did so knowing that something along the lines of AFRICOM was on the horizon in the form of, under Clinton, the African Crisis Response Initiative, right? And uh, Qaddafi was soon marginalized within uh, what then became the African Union, right? Because in 2002, they shifted from the OAU to the African Union. South Africa took a growing role in shaping conversations about intervention. And it was around this time that an entity, a continental-wide entity that once uh, explicitly resisted the idea of intervention, right, and held um, as something as something um, very much uh, to be protected, national sovereignty, put that aside in the name of peace and security. And this is obviously coinciding with not only the, the rise of AFRICOM, but with the rise of the notion of the responsibility to protect, right? So you have a fundamental shift 
in the African continent within these governing structures away from a principle of non-intervention to effectively an embrace of intervention. And so that shift is really important for contextualizing what was then able to happen in Somalia in 2006 in the wake of the invasion, uh, the Ethiopian invasion of the country, as so many countries agreed so willingly to get involved. So again, this brings me back to, I think, this pitch that we need to be paying attention to the dynamics and the continent as a whole and beyond. Samara Belushi, uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. And um, we'd love to have you back to continue this conversation because uh, really this is, an, this is a region that I don't think gets nearly enough uh, attention as we've kind of, uh, as you've illustrated for us here. So uh, we'd, we'd love to keep doing it. Of course, it's great to chat. Thanks.